0: Luke 9, verse 51 to 56. Let us hear now the very word of God. And it came to pass, when the time was come that he should be received up, he steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem, and sent messengers before his face, and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem, And when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them, even as Elias did? But he turned and rebuked them and said, ye know not what manner of spirit ye are of. For the Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And they went to another village. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray briefly for the preacher. Oh, Lord, our God. We come to the preached word. And we pray, Lord, that it would be the Holy Spirit here at work. That through the minister, it would be the Holy Spirit that preaches. Because, Father, we have come not to see a man but we have come to see, or I should say a mere man, we have come to see Jesus Christ. We have come to see Christ in the word. Help us to hear Christ speak. Help us to hear the voice of our beloved, our beloved who encourages but also rebukes. And help us to, by the Spirit of God, be conformed to his image. So help the minister decrease and help help us to see Christ. Help us all to decrease that Christ may increase. Oh, Lord, as we come to the preaching, then our prayer is that you would let my speech and my preaching be not with the enticing words of man's wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power, that the faith of the congregation should not stand in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And we ask this in Jesus name. Amen. The Lord Jesus Christ very often says that you and I are to examine ourselves very often. He rebukes us when we come to the Word of God, saying, Ye know not what manner of spirit you are of. And we, then, beloved, are to examine our hearts to see what manner of spirit we are of, and whether it is the kind of spirit that the Lord would commend, or the manner of spirit in which the Lord would chastise. Jesus calls for us to do this very regularly. You remember 1 Corinthians 11 when we come to the Lord's Supper. He says, let a man examine himself. In other places, such as in Second Corinthians 13, he says, examine yourselves, whether ye be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know ye not your own selves, etc. And here in our text, Jesus says, ye know not what manner of spirit you are of. And what we are to do, beloved, is to examine our heart and our mind in many dimensions and in many areas. But today, specifically, the Lord Jesus calls us to examine our desire for the salvation of God's enemies, especially our desire for those who are antagonistic to the church and to Jesus Christ himself. Those who might sneer at us, those who would revile us, Those who would show us no goodness when we show them goodness. Those who are difficult to us. In other words, we might weep over friends and family who do not know the Lord. But when it comes to those who are antagonistic to us, maybe it's the atheist who mocks us. The Roman Catholic who denies the gospel and has corrupted the very worship of God. The Muslim that denies that Jesus Christ is God incarnate. Is our spirit inclined in this thought? Good, let them get what is coming to them by the judgment of God. Or will we instead indefatigably proclaim the gospel to them in the hopes that they might be saved? Christ asks from this text, have you and I considered our spirit in this matter? Do you know what manner of spirit you're of? Do you know what kind of heart you have? Is your heart in this area particularly, but we could make it broader, but today to stick to the text, in this area particularly, do you know what the inclination of your heart is? Or would you receive the rebuke of the Lord? You don't even know yourself what you are. So, that we might examine our motives and our heart, our theme from the text today will be a spirit to save lives. A spirit to save lives that is commended by the Lord. A spirit to save lives. And God willing will do so under three heads. The first is the spirit of the Savior. Second is the spirit of the disciples. And third is the spirit of the sanctifier. And so, first, our first heading, the spirit of the Savior. The rebuke the Lord delivers, as I've mentioned, is ye know not what manner of spirit you're of. And the word spirit in the Greek language deals with the inclination and desires of the soul. The soul being, among other things, the motive part of man. Uh, you think on the soul's inclination, both righteous and sinful desires. We'll speak about that a bit tonight when it comes to child rearing. That the idea in child rearing is to, uh, by God's help, have a child whose spirit, whose soul is inclined to the things of God and righteousness. But before we consider the inclination of the soul of the disciples, we can remember our Lord Jesus Christ, that our Lord Jesus Christ has a true body and a reasonable soul, meaning he is not just God, but he is also very man, meaning his soul has inclinations and desires as man. And he as man is the perfect and righteous man with a perfect and righteous soul. And what we have to do uh, is we observe the Lord Jesus Christ and we see that his soul is ever inclined towards righteousness. And that is why he becomes the Lord our righteousness as he has won a perfect righteousness for us. We receive his righteousness, his right standing with God by is ours by faith and that is how we are justified after all. But when we look on the Lord here, He is not just our justification. He is also our exemplar. He is our example for our own sanctification. Boys and girls, sanctification can be defined simply this way, becoming more like Christ. And so when we observe Christ, and we observe his rebuke against his disciples, we ask, what is it we ought to be inclined towards? Well, we can look at the Savior himself. And we can say we have to be like him like him. And there is a great contrast in this text between the spirit of the disciples and the spirit of our Savior. Consider verse 51. And it came to pass when the time was come that he should be received up. He steadfastly set his face to go to Jerusalem. We know why he was set to go to Jerusalem. Why he set his face like flint to go there. Why? He knew he was going to be delivered into the hand of cruel men to be crucified and then face God's wrath. His face had to be set like Flint because he knew the horrors that were going to come and he had to steal his soul to face it. In other words, he was never taken unaware. He knew why he was born. He knew why he had come. He said he had come to give his life as a ransom to many, for many And he knew what was required to save his people. He had made a pact with the Father from eternity past to accomplish it. And he would accomplish it out of love for a rebellious and sinful people. In a recent communion service, we meditated on Christ in Isaiah 53, verse 6. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. I hid not my face from what? Shame. And spitting. He didn't hide his face from the shameful and painful death of the cross. And even when he considered what he was going to do, and it was a terror to his soul, in Gethsemane, you remember, he knew God's wrath loomed before him. And what did he sweat, boys and girls? Blood, as he thought on the terrors before him. Even here in our text, he has to set his face like steel. Towards it, when the terror of it arises in his soul, he resolved to meet his shameful and painful death of the cross. Why? What was the motive force for it? Verse 56 gives you his heart. The Son of Man is not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. And what kind of men? Did the Lord come to save? I think this is very helpful for us to understand as he rebukes his disciple. Who did he give his life for? For the righteous. No, for there are none. Not the righteous. The other R word, the rebellious. The rebellious. The scorner. The mocker. The lewd. The blasphemer. Men and women like ourselves. He gave his life to save sinners, sinners who would believe on him. Before we consider the disciples, believer, look on the Savior first and see his determination to save you. Isn't it astonishing that nothing would stop him from reconciling you to God? Not even the terror of God's wrath stopped him from laying down his life for you. This is how deeply inclined the soul of the Savior was towards saving lives, towards saving your own life, believer. What a Savior. Is this not a matter of praise? What a Savior you and I have been given, brethren. What a Savior it is. What a Savior can be yours, unbeliever, whose mercies extend to the rebel, those who will come to him by faith. As many of you heard last week, in the free offer of the gospel, come to the waters, he said, and have everlasting life. He comes for the rebellious and Christ will receive you and save you. And as you see his work in willingly going to the cross, do you not think that he willingly receives sinners? He does. He said, those who come to him, he will in no wise cast out. But you, child of God, The only reason, as we think on the disciples, the only reason the disciples are saved, the only reason you are saved, is because this is Christ's heart. This is the inclination of his soul. And as you think on the salvation of others, if you have received mercy, how can you not look on others and have a spirit that desires the salvation of the lost? When you think on your own rebellion... And your own sin against the Lord that made you. How can you not as well desire not the destruction of the lost, but their salvation? You know, if Christ had a heart as hard as ours often is, none of us could or would be saved. That alone, I think, informs us how we relate to the lost and rebellious sinner. More on that thought a bit later. But there is something remarkable here in the text in verse 51. And perhaps you picked up on it. The Holy Spirit does not actually mention the cross, though we perceive the shadow of it there from Christ's face. What the Spirit says is, when the time was come that he should be received up. Received up. The sense is when he would be taken away in an upward motion. What is the Spirit speaking of then in the text? It's Christ's ascension and not his cross. Mark sixteen nineteen uses the very same language. After the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. In other words, what is in the mind of Christ was not only the cross, but what comes after the cross. He has in view what is the end of the cross, his ascension to the right hand of God. And that's really what is here in view in the text. You remember, don't you, in Hebrews 12, Why Christ endured his cross. Listen to it again. Wherefore seeing we are also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. And let us run with patience the race that is set before us. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And here is the key. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross despising the shame, and here's the ascension, is sat, set down on the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be wearied and faint in your minds. Why did he set his face like flint? Why did he go and endure the shame and pain of the cross for the joy that was set before him? the joy that was set before him of being set at God's right hand as the mediator, priest, king, the joy of reconciling his lambs to God in his cross, his resurrection, and his ascension, the joy of knowing you, believers, will join him in the paradise of God forever, that where he is, you will be also and forever. The cross was a means to these ends, in other words. The reconciliation of all things, of all of you, the elect of God to himself. And so what helps him, what aids him in enduring the shame of the cross is knowing that he will save you. And you will be with him forever, believer. This is the end of his work is to save and save to the uttermost. Now, It's very interesting as the doctrine of the ascension is in view. Even the doctrine of the ascension in the Old Testament teaches you the kind of men and women that he came to save, doesn't it? Do you not remember the 68th Psalm, verse 18? Thou hast ascended on high. Thou hast led captivity captive. Thou hast received gifts from men. So this is all in the ascension of Christ. Yea, for who? The rebellious also, that the Lord God might dwell among them. This is the work of Christ, isn't it? He has come for those who are rebels, that the Lord God might dwell among them. He arose as the conqueror of death, and he gave gifts not to the friendly. He gave gifts to the rebels. And if you are a believer, child of God, you know this is true. You have rebelled, you have sinned against God. And yet, he has ascended to give you good gifts, that he may dwell with you forever. Not the righteous, but the rebel. This, then, is the spirit of the Savior. And if you think today, or maybe you struggle with this, that he will not receive you, sinner, because you have so greatly rebelled against God, you need to understand who he came for. If you have chafed at his laws, you have sinned greatly, and you have sinned grievously, and you think, what would Christ have to do with me? you need to think again. Even if Christian people like the disciples here have kept you at arm's length or hated you, if you go to Christ, He will receive you. That's His promise. Go to Him and go now. So if we've seen the heart of the Savior, let's consider in our second heading the spirit of the disciples. Now, the wrong way To take this text is to, and you see sometimes we do this kind of thing, is to laugh at James and John. They really, though, are here in the scripture as stand-ins for you and me. That every one of us would put ourselves in their shoes. And verse 52 sets the scene for us. We read that Christ sent messengers before his face and they went and entered into a village of the Samaritans to make ready for him. And so, his face set to Jerusalem, Jesus had to go through Samaria, it was the fastest way through. And the next verse shows us the reaction that he received uh, by the Samaritans to his presence. Sadly, mournfully, sinfully, they did not receive him, because his face was as though he would go to Jerusalem. So why this lack of hospitality? And what did this have to do with Jerusalem? Well, boys and girls, and especially for you, maybe this would be helpful that you would understand the scripture. There, this reflects a great animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans that was present at this time. Part of that animosity was ethnic, part of it was religious, and it was an ancient, ancient animosity that went back centuries to the time of Solomon's son, Rehoboam. It wasn't so recent it was actually very ancient. And you remember at that time that the ten northern tribes, which called themselves Israel, seceded and rebelled against Judah. They rejected King Rehoboam to follow Jeroboam. Jeroboam was of Ephraim and not of the tribe of Judah. And it was Judah that held the promises. And boys and girls, you get the term Jew from Judah. Those of the tribe of Judah. And that's where you get the word and the name Jew. And so you see the division here is actually very ancient and not a new thing at all at the time of Christ. And as you remember from the book of Kings, the two books, Israel never had a godly king. From the very beginning, Jeroboam had corrupted their worship. He had set up alternate places of worship apart from the temple in Jerusalem. You remember he set up golden calves in an imitation of what happened with Aaron and an alternate priesthood as well. And so from a very ancient time, the religion of the northern tribes had been grossly corrupted. And so many of the kings followed, the Bible says mournfully, in the sin of Jeroboam. Very beginning, the worship of Israel was distinct from the worship of Judah. And it only got worse because later Israel was taken into captivity by Assyria. And Assyria's king, Shalmanazer, resettled Israel with idolaters. This is one way, of course, you wipe out a people, is that you bring in foreign religions and you have uh, the people of God uh, um, syncretize with them. And so idolaters mixed in with the ten tribes, and this is where the Samaritans arise from. Their worship had once been grossly corrupted, and because of that seed corruption, of course, their worship becomes even more grossly corrupted through idolatry. They had become very, very um, vulnerable to idolatry, because from the beginning, their worship was corrupted, which, is, of course, is a danger we can fall into as the church, to syncretize foreign worship practices, uh, by foreign meaning non-Christian worship practices. Well... The Samaritans did not worship at Jerusalem, and you see now that that went back centuries to Rehoboam and Jeroboam's time. Instead, they worshipped at Mount Gerizim. And they also only believed that the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses, were scripture. And so these ancient divisions, as you might imagine, caused great animosity, both ethnic, because they were in the eyes of the Jews, half-breeds, so to speak, but also religious because they worshipped in a manner not prescribed by the word of God. And so the Jew and the Samaritan were at each other's throats, so to speak. Such that in John 4, you remember when Jesus met the Samaritan woman, all of this comes out, right? The, the woman said that they, the Samaritans, worshipped at Mount Gerizim, whereas Jesus, a Jew, worshipped at Jerusalem. And there's that religious divide. And the Samaritan woman marveled that Jesus even spoke to her. Why? She said, the Jews, listen to this well, have no dealings with the Samaritans. All of this is in the undercurrent of our text. And you see why the Samaritans refused to receive Christ and his men. When they saw not only are they Jews, but they were going to go worship God in Jerusalem. In a sense, they they were thinking, no. No. You ought not to worship God in Jerusalem because of this religious divine. Now, I suppose it's worth saying, lest we forget, who's in the right here? The Jews. The Jews are in the right. The Samaritans had truly corrupted worship. They had departed from the, the scripture, as Jesus would say. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus is a Jew. Uh, the Samaritans did worship for that time, the wrong place, and in the wrong manner. Of course, that all came uh, apart later on, because Jesus said the time is coming, and is now here, where you will not worship on that mountain or that place, but we worship in spirit and in truth. And so here we are, not in Jerusalem or in Gerizim, worshiping the Lord in spirit and the truth. But all that background aside, the question of our text is this, what is our heart, what is our spirit towards those that would be like the Samaritans? Do we desire their salvation? Or instead, would we say, burn them all, Lord? Certainly, James and John tell us what it must not be. Their reaction in verse 54 is when his disciples, James and John, saw this, they said, Lord, wilt thou that we command fire to come down from heaven and consume them even as Elias or Elijah did? They wanted to burn the Samaritans in response. And note this well, Christian. They even give a flimsy kind of justification from the scripture. Notice that they try to justify themselves as Elias, as Elijah did. And they use justification from 2 Kings chapter 1 when Elijah called fire down from God on the men wicked king Ahiza in Samaria so they are even connecting the place in Samaria sent to accost this man of God. But there are are differences in the two situations. First, Elijah was going to be apprehended and taken in um, physically at threat by the king God had rebuked and had told uh, this king that he was going to die in judgment. This king was under the judgment of God and was going to die for his unrepentant Baal worship. In other words, divine judgment hung over the king and the king retaliates against God the man of God, by sending these companies to go and take him in instead of repenting. And Elijah did not respond out of the maliciousness of his flesh. God was in all of that to protect his prophet. And the only thing in common between the two incidents was something to do with Samaria and the desire, sinfully, of the disciples to send fire down on Samaria The broader principle is this, you must be mindful, brethren, of your flesh's desire to use the Bible to justify carnality of every kind, of every kind. Men do it all the time, and that is not the Bible's fault, that is our fault, that is the fault of our flesh. Our flesh will stretch the Bible, particularly narratives, to justify our flesh's inclinations, sinful inclinations. You know, it's very interesting if you think of the hypocrisy here, right? Last time, John did not remember Moses telling Joshua, oh, that all of God's people were prophets. And they forbid, the, forbade this man from casting out demons. But when it comes to the gratification of the flesh, his carnal desire for vengeance, he stretches an example beyond all context to justify himself. And so, brethren, we have to be careful It is very easy to play fast and loose with the word of God. Recently, and I was thinking how timely this is, there is an article by a reformed minister warning uh, us, all men, uh, against, and I won't even mention the man's name, against a very lewd so-called minister who uh, justifies all kinds of lewdness in his works um, based on he's telling it to the man. And the thing is, friends, Uh, His supporters, when this article came out, said, well, 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 what about Ezekiel? What about Ezekiel in the Old Testament? And God had a particular purpose in using the imagery he gave Ezekiel to give to the people of God, to uh, show them their own whoredoms. And what happens is men will will deny the very plain uh, teachings of the Bible, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, things like that, in a flimsy attempt to justify their carnality. And this is something that we have to be mindful of. You can find in your own sinful flesh some stretching of a biblical text in order to justify yourself. So what is it that's going to keep you on the rails, so to speak? You always use the clear teachings of the Bible, the clear prescriptive texts in the Bible in order to put your flesh in check. This is simply what God tells us to do. They interpret the narratives for us. And we don't use extraordinary circumstances, especially when God is working in a particular way through a particular man, and use that to justify ourselves. Or perhaps there is a time in redemptive history where a certain thing was permitted, but was not according to the plan of God. You think of how foolish we would be, men, to look on David's example and say, well, he had multiple wives. I guess I can have multiple wives too. And ignore what Jesus says, which is marriage is between one male and one female. Lifetime. So, it is plain to see that the disciples were ignoring plain teachings of scripture. And I'll get to that in a minute. There are texts that would have, uh, spoken to them in this situation. But they were using the flesh to, uh, the Bible to gratify their flesh. And how can you tell? I think it's very, very instructive. They don't ask the Lord, Lord, will you rain fire down on the Samaritans? What do they say? Wilt thou, we, command fire to come down from heaven? In other words, they're not reserving even vengeance for the Lord, but they want to take it for themselves. They don't say, Lord, they have, they have disgraced your mission, They're refusing to receive you. What a great sin is this? Will you deal with them? That would be bad enough, right? Will you kill them all? They forget what scripture says. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. And you know, you might know that, boys and girls, from Romans chapter 12. The apostle Paul says that. But did you remember that he's merely citing your Old Testament? Uh, one of the five books of Moses, Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-five, and the flesh of the disciples ignored that as well. You see, they go, you know, Deuteronomy is such a well-known book to every Jew. They ignore that and they find a flimsy excuse in Elijah's life to cast on fire, as opposed to something so plain when the Lord says, vengeance is mine, I will repay the disciples wanted fire to come down on the heads of the Samaritans, but do you remember how Paul used Deuteronomy thirty-two, thirty-five, and wove it with Proverbs twenty-five, Romans twelve, beginning in verse nineteen? Dearly beloved, avenge not yourselves, but rather give place unto wrath, for it is written, "Vengeance is mine; I will repay," saith the Lord. Now, he weaves in the proverbs. Therefore, if thine enemy hunger, Feed him if he thirst, give him drink. For in so doing, what thou shalt heap coals of fire on his head. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. You know, in in some ways, really, if the disciples really wanted to heap fire on the head of the Samaritans, they were to overcome evil with good. Either the Lord would bring the fire of the Holy Spirit on his enemies convicted of their sinful behavior they may turn to the lord under the fire of conviction which is what paul is teaching in romans 12 or or this will add to their condemnation in the judgment and there will be more fire heaped on their heads but the fire the christian is called to call down is overcoming evil with good repaying evil with good and not evil this is the fire that is called down from heaven. And so Christ rebukes them. Ye know not what manner of spirit you are of. And that is a very searching rebuke, beloved, and one that you and I must take note of, even just the bare words, even if they were not in context in this text. And it may be a rebuke that he delivers to you and to me. So I'd like to look at some observations here from Christ's rebuke. And the first is, and most necessary perhaps to consider, is their own ignorance of themselves. Their own ignorance of themselves. The disciples had not examined their motivations. The disciples had not examined their heart's inclinations. They never saw, at least not in this area, that they were walking in the flesh and not according to the spirit. You think of what Jesus is saying. You don't even know yourself. You don't even know who you are. You don't even know what you're asking for. What a thing to hear that from the Lord. You and I must constantly then examine the inclinations of our our flesh, our soul. And we must ask, are these in accord with the word of God? And in this particular case, it's clear that it was not. And you understand Right? The reason that I have cited the Old Testament is that these are plain things that they should have seen out of the word of God in their dispensation, in their time in redemptive history. And so where do we check our heart? Where do we check our flesh? We check it against the word of God. Do I know what spirit I am of? Do I check the inclination of my heart against the very words of God? That's what I must do. And in this particular case, they should have seen the walking word of God, the living word of God, Jesus Christ, and see that they did not have the same spirit as their Savior. They did not understand him as the incarnate word, that his ministry over these years has been one to save men's lives and not destroy them. Here is a checkup for your own soul, beloved. Is this your heart's inclination to see men saved? Do you have a desire to see the lost turn from hell? Do you have a heartfelt desire to see sinners turn from sin unto Christ? This is the inclination of the Savior. And maybe the disciples did in some way. Maybe it was just not perfected yet. After all, they preached the gospel. But they were doing that up till now in the villages of the Jews, weren't they? And maybe mercy did not extend in their hearts to the Samaritans. And you almost get the sense, almost get the sense here, and I won't impute it to them, but you do get the sense that they're almost waiting for some slight to be shown them so that they can retaliate against the Samaritans. And so we have to understand that our own evangelism must extend to those our flesh may not like very much at all. We cannot ever think in our heart that some groups are worthy of salvation and some are not. Because I don't like their religion, I don't like their sin, I don't like their ethnicity, I don't like whatever. You need to examine your spirit. Are those there those that you would rather see burn and not turn to the Lord? Is it the Muslim? Is it the Mormon? Is it the Papist? Is it the Russian? Is it the German? Is it the African? The Indonesian? On and on and on you can go. And you need to examine the inclination of your heart towards every kind of person. Every kind of sinner as well. The homosexual, the transgender, the prostitute, the drug user, the social classes, the poor, the destitute, the homeless, maybe the rich. As we are stuck here, or not stuck here, we have been placed here in the midst of a very rich society. Maybe we don't want to see the rich man come to the Lord. Or maybe we don't want to see the poor man come to the Lord. Maybe it's those that have hurt you or mocked you, who spitefully have used you. Maybe the atheist boys and girls who have mocked your faith and have ridiculed you for it. Maybe the one who persecutes you at the workplace. And maybe the one who refuses to give you a job because of your stand for the Lord. More broadly, I think, than evangelism, you can consider the Sixth Commandment as a whole. I have part of it put on your uh, bulletin as far as the duties that are required. Do you tend, in general, when men slight you towards hatred and reviling? Do you even know if that's your spirit? Sometimes, right, we're so blinded by our sin, we don't even realize our response and our reaction. And Jesus says, you don't know what manner of spirit you have. You need to check your reaction to provocation, maliciousness from another. Does it produce maliciousness in you? Let me get back at them, or I feel justified lying or whatever else. You need to examine your spirit and bring your soul to the Lord for healing. So second, another observation, and I've touched on this already briefly, but the disciples did not know the spirit of the Savior as in our first heading. In other words, they did not know Jesus as they should have. That is a lamentable thing for any true believer to realize. Did Christ not rebuke another disciple in this way? Have I been so long time with you, and yet hast thou not known me, Philip? You need to never stop learning who Christ is in the word of God. And also you must meditate on what kind of man he is. You need to never stop learning of Christ. If you have grown in the Lord by his word, you recognize that Christ has become more and more glorious to you today than he was God willing on the day you first believed. And you must never stop learning who he is. I have mentioned this before and I will mention it again as your pastor. The worst thing that I can conceive of is any of you, myself too, coming before the Lord and you not recognizing who you meet. Know who he is before you meet him in that way, so that you will never hear those words, depart from me, I never knew you. You must know who Christ is. Just consider his own disciples here, living with him day after day. They missed the point of Christ's ministry and miracles over the years. They never stopped to think of all of his miracles, right? You actually think, This should be a jarring thing to hear come out of the mouth of the disciples. For these years, has he ever once used his power destructively? No. Every display of his power has been to heal. Every one of his displays of power has been to bless men. Every miracle, as we have heard uh, the Savior perform, has pointed them to the good news, the gospel, that he had come to save men's lives and not destroy them. You think about this. He heals the blind to give them sight that they can see God. He heals the leper to show that sinners can be uh, healed of all their sinfulness. He cast out demons to show sinners could be free of their bondage to sin. That if the Son has set you free, you are free Indeed. Yet, curiously, this is the very miracle that they wanted to forbade in another man last time. And yet here they want to call on a miracle that Christ has never once done in his earthly life. Their spirit was not right because they did not know Jesus. And we can miss this very plain and obvious fact that he had come to save men's lives and not destroy them. If the disciples can miss it, you and I can too. And so your spirit, above all, must desire to know Christ and his mission during this present age, and you must have your heart inclined towards it. Third observation is that you don't know your spirit if you can pray contrary to his revealed will. 1 John 5.14 says, This is the confidence we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he heareth us. If we pray, this is what they are doing. They're asking Jesus for something that is essentially a prayer. If we pray for something against his revealed will, what will we receive? We will receive a rebuke. And the thing is, we are not sensible at times to understand that in our prayers, the Lord might be rebuking us, just as he did the disciples here. Boys and girls, let me, um, let me say, there, there are some things that are secret and hidden things, absolutely. You ask for the Lord, uh, for wisdom, for those things. But there are so many things that are revealed in the Word of God. And you are never, if your spirit, your soul, is inclined against the Word of God, you are never to pray for those things. For instance, boys and girls, you are going to be tempted, likely, to be involved with unbelievers, whether as close friends or, God forbid, even worse, to want to marry them. And I have heard many say, I will pray and bring this to the Lord to see if he might bless it. Well, beloved, if you come to the Lord saying, I would like to be engaged with an unbeliever, you are going to get the rebuke of the Lord. He is going to say, you don't know what manner of spirit you are of. The Lord plainly says, no, if you love me, you would not be unequally yoked. What hath Christ to do with Belial? What is that? You do not love me. You don't know me as you ought. I am not your great treasure. Instead, you're willing to leave me for a person and an unbeliever at that. So, beloved, Never pray for things against the revealed will of God. He will give you a rebuke. Even so, with that principle uh, and those three observations, let's not leave the Samaritans off the hook either. Right? They did not receive Jesus, and that was a grave, grave sin. We can't excuse them, and That actually is what makes the Savior's graciousness all the more remarkable, that they forsook their own mercy, as we heard from Jonah 2, verse 8. Why did the Lord not rain fire on them? Well, it was not yet time for the judgment. Judgment will come, but this is a time in which the Lord is extending mercy. Romans 2 verse 4, Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and longsuffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. You may have refused to receive Christ, friend, He has been gracious in not judging you. You may be like the Samaritans at that time, refusing to have Christ. However, he is long-suffering. But don't, don't take uh, his long-suffering for license on your part. He is giving you time to repent before your death, but his pleading that you are hearing now out of the word of God will end when you die for it is appointed unto men once to die, but after this, the judgment. Hebrews 9.27. Right now, the Lord is being very merciful in not consuming any sinner who does not come to him today. But one day, that pleading ends, and then comes the judgment. And so the Samaritans can't be left off the hook there. If they did not turn to the Lord before their death, they would receive the fire of hell. Jesus speaks of it in other places. He speaks of the eternal torment of hell. And so you are not to refuse Christ. You know, sadly, and you see this kind of thing online, right? Men will mock him. They will mock him online. and They'll say, I dare him to strike me down with lightning. It is his goodness right now that you are not struck down. But one day he will strike you down for death comes to all men and then the judgment. And you will have to answer, friend, if you don't come to the Lord, why you mocked him when all he was doing during that time was giving you time to repent of your sin. That was his goodness. And this will be the fire that will be heaped on your head forever. But the Savior extends himself to you now. Come to me. Come to me and I will give you rest. You know, brethren, for our encouragement, brethren, uh, in continuing to seek the lost, what is really quite remarkable is even though Samaria, Samaria insulted him in this way, he did not give up on Samaria, now did he? He had souls to save in Samaria, and he returned there later. Do you remember that? How did he return later, in a very powerful way? Well, he didn't return there bodily, but he returned by his spirit through his own disciples. What were the marching orders of the disciples, even, even those here in the book of Acts 1 verse eight. "But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost is come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in where Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. This is how long-suffering the Lord is. They refuse to receive him, and he still sends his disciples again back to Samaria. And maybe the question on your mind is, would the disciples do it? And do it next time to save and not destroy? Well, let's see the answer to the question in our final heading, which is the spirit of the sanctifier. Well, you likely know, if you know the book of Acts, that they did go. They did go. And the Holy Ghost notes something very particular about who went. In Acts 8.14, Now when the apostles which were at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and who? John. They sent Peter and John. And the Holy Spirit has recorded for you that John went that John was sent. And the one that once prayed that fire would consume Samaria goes to Samaria carrying gospel reconciliation with him, that Samaria would turn to the Lord Jesus. What a remarkable turn in the man, isn't it, brethren? And What is the accounting of it? It is that the Holy Spirit is a great sanctifier, the Spirit of Christ burning in his heart. It's interesting that providentially we just read from 2 John and you see the love the man has in his heart. This is a remarkable turn. And it is the Holy Spirit that can change our spirit when Christ rebukes us. And that is the hope of the Christian, is that when we are rebuked, we are sent to the Lord that he would not only forgive us, but that he would change us by his spirit. He gives us new affections as John received, right? His spirit once cried for vengeance, but later his spirit cried for mercy and gospel reconciliation. You know, Thomas Chalmers once preached a very memorable sermon and it was titled and his theme was the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. And what Jesus had done by his Holy Spirit was change John's spirit so profoundly, that the apostle received new affections, a new inclination. Rather than wanting to see men burn, he had a love for all men. And what can account for that but the expulsive power of a new affection, of a new birth, of a new creation, of a new man in Christ who has these old fleshly inclinations put away so that what his heart desires now is salvation even to the Samaritans. And believer, this is where we take heart, is that Christ, when he rebukes us, also sanctifies us. Did he not say he came to save lives and not destroy them? Do you think he wasn't speaking to you in that too? That he has come to save your life, to save your life and not destroy it, so that in the rebuke you understand he is not here to destroy me, but to save me. For this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, isn't it? And through his rebuke, he also, by his spirit working in your heart, gives you new inclinations. He doesn't do it to crush his disciples into powder when he rebuked them and said, you don't even know what manner of spirit you're of. He wants them to look into their heart, examine their heart, and bring their heart to the Lord, that he would change them. And so when you are rebuked by his word, beloved, even today, when you are wounded by his rebuke and you discover that the manner of spirit you have in some way is vile, take the rebuke to Christ and say, I did not know until your spirit came what manner of spirit I was of. So please, Lord, I know you can do it. Change my spirit. Can he not do it, beloved? Will he not do it? He says, you are not to be doubting when you go to him, not to be a double-minded man. Go, knowing he can do these things. Whatever your besetting sins are, you can look to Jesus with great hope. And even as you seek further sanctification for your heart, you are comforted and consoled by our text too, because we are not what we ought to be. Even the best of us on the deathbed will not be what we ought to be. And in our failings, then, we look at the spirit of the Savior as we began our time, that he is the Lord, our righteousness. That even as we fail, even as his disciples were rebuked, were they saved because they had a right spirit in them? No, they were saved because Jesus Christ had come to save men's lives, even to be the Lord their own righteousness. As Romans 5.19 says, For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. It doesn't say by the obedience of many, many shall be made righteous. It says by the obedience of only one, meaning Christ, many are made righteous. And this is the safety net, so to speak, for our sanctification that undergirds it when we look that there is now no condemnation for any that are in Christ, for they have the Lord as their righteousness. And that is why, as we make our way to the celestial city, we often stumble, we often fall. But so long as we remember Hebrews 12, that we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, we will be kept safe and secure. You are saved by the life and death of the Savior, who came not to destroy your life, but to save it. So weep over your sin, yes, but through your tears, never lose sight of Christ. And as we close on this, you think of the request of the disciples to bring fire down on Samaria. Has any man or woman ever been rebuked when they asked the Lord, give me a new affection after the word of God. No. This is the thing you can ask for with great assurance that the Lord smiles upon. So ask according to his will. Give me a new affection that is after the word of God. It is a broken spirit he desires, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, thou wilt not despise. So brethren, examine your spirit and bring any defects to the Lord for healing and he will do it. Go to him without doubting that Christ receives sinners and that's not just for your conversion but also for your sanctification. Let's leave Luke there for today and return next time, God willing. If able, let's arise for prayer.